The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. In part one of our episode, we identified 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and the exploration of Jesus' resurrection. As a reminder, here are those 12 presumptive facts again. 1. Jesus lived as a historical person. 2. Jesus was crucified. 3. Jesus died. 4. Jesus' body was placed in a known accessible tomb. 5. Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. 
6. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. 7. A large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. 8. After the reappearance of Jesus, the disciples were psychologically transformed. 9. The resurrected Jesus was central to the early church's message. 10. The phenomenon of the resurrection was central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. 11. The church was born and grew as a direct result of the resurrected Jesus. And finally, 12. Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. In part one, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus lived, was crucified, and died. In part two of this episode, we intend to continue examining the remaining theories and excuses which have historically been offered to explain the resurrection of Jesus versus the biblical record that Jesus rose from the dead. We continue with number four. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. In exploring this presumptive issue, there are several facts which must be stated. 1. First of all, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus' body was laid in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Therefore, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both knew where the tomb in question was. 2. Second, Scripture records that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected and prominent member in good standing with the Jewish Sanhedrin. 3. Third, Jesus was dead on Thursday at 3 o'clock p.m., and the High Sabbath was set to begin at 6 o'clock p.m. the same day. Hence, everyone involved, and in particular those who were Jews, were anxious to finalize putting Jesus and all those who had been executed prior to 6 p.m. in some tomb or burial place. This is because anyone who had touched a dead body would be considered ceremonially unclean. Given the fact, Scripture records that Joseph of Arimathea had to go to Pilate to obtain permission for the body, collect the body, and transport it, it would be logical to assume the tomb was relatively close by. While it is true that there is presently some debate about the exact location where the tomb in question was located, this does not mean that those who lived in Jesus' time suffered from the same problem. First of all, we must bear in mind that 2,000 years have passed, and the layout of Jerusalem and its surroundings have changed due to Jerusalem having been destroyed, sieged, attacked, conquered, and recaptured numerous times. However, none of this was an issue at the time that Jesus' tomb was in question. 4. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 6, makes it clear that Pilate, who was the Roman governor, granted a guard to be placed at Jesus' tomb at the request of the chief priests and Pharisees. 
Whether we assume the guards were Roman guards or temple guards, the fact remains that the guard or guards would have therefore have known where the tomb was where Jesus was laid. By extension, since the guards reported to either Pilate or the priests and Pharisees, then one or both of these would have had access to the information where the tomb was where Jesus was laid simply by asking the guards. The word kostadia was used in Matthew chapter 27 verses 65 and 66 to refer to the guard unit of a Roman legion which consisted of four to sixteen highly trained soldiers who slept in four-hour shifts. In order for these guards to watch Jesus' body, they would need to know where the tomb was. 5. In reading the four Gospels, it is fairly clear that four women, including Mary Magdalene, Mary Salome, Johanna, and Mary, the mother of James, physically went to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning. Some scholars believe that there was a group of as many as 12 women who had physically visited Jesus' tomb during this period. In order for these women to visit Jesus' tomb, these women would have to know where the tomb was. 6. The New Testament records that Simon Peter and John the Apostle physically went to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning. Again, in order for these disciples or any other persons to visit Jesus' tomb, they would have to know where the tomb was. 7. Even if we assume that no one knew where Jesus' tomb was, the Jewish establishment and the Roman government both would have to have had the resources and ability to locate Jesus' tomb if they wanted to. Finally, the Jewish establishment and the Romans of Jesus' day each would have had their respective highly vested investments and concerns which they would have given them tangible motives and reasons for debunking any claims that Jesus had died and subsequently risen to life again. Next, 5. Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. The Bible, church tradition, and the historical record all demonstrate that while many of the disciples did have contact with one another after Jesus' crucifixion, either personally or by correspondence, they were for the most part scattered and dispersed eventually to different areas. Eusebius, who was one of the most important of the early church historians, wrote his history of the early church in AD 325. According to his research, Jesus' disciples were scattered over the whole world where they preached the gospel everywhere. The church historian John Schumacher researched the lives of the apostles and recounted the history of their deaths as follows. Matthew, also called Levi, wound up in Ethiopia. Mark wound up in Alexandria, Egypt. Luke went to Greece. John preached the gospel in Asia Minor and ended up in modern Turkey. Peter preached in Asia Minor and finally in Rome. James the Just wound up in Jerusalem. 
James the Greater preached in Sardinia and in Spain and wound up in Jerusalem. Philip preached the gospel in Scythia, modern southern Russia, and possibly Phrygia, modern Turkey, Galatia, and Gaul, modern France. He finished his career in Turkey. Bartholomew was a missionary to Asia. He witnessed in modern-day Turkey and wound up in modern-day America. Andrew preached the gospel in Asia Minor, Armenia, and Scythia, modern southern Russia, and possibly Greece. Thomas preached the gospel in Mesopotamia, including Babylon, modern Iraq, Parthia, and India. Matthias, the apostle, preached the gospel in Judea, then in Ethiopia, the region of Colchis, now in modern-day Georgia. Barnabas, who was one of the 70 disciples, preached throughout Italy and Cyprus and wound up in Salonica. Paul traveled and preached throughout Asia Minor, England, and wound up in Rome. 6. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. In order that we clearly understand and settle the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty, we need to remember several key historical issues. A. The world that was at the time of Jesus' life, ministry, trial, crucifixion, death, and burial was one ruled in most respects by the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. There were constant political and religious tensions between Rome its various puppet rulers of the area and of the common people. These internal and external struggles led to protests, threats, and rebellion, leading eventually to the Jewish wars and to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This being said, the powers of Rome would not have tolerated anyone or anything who posed a serious threat to its rule. B. The various local authorities, rulers in Jerusalem and in those areas influenced by Christianity would not have tolerated any serious threats posed by anyone or anything to their interests. Firstly, they were under the watchful eye of Rome, who would be quick to take action should local authorities prove themselves to be either ineffectual or disloyal. Second, Most, if not all, of the local authorities had a strong vested interest in their own political position and power. Consequently, on these two bases, the local authorities would have immense pressure and motivation to monitor, control, and eliminate anyone or anything who posed a serious threat to their rule. C. Lastly, let us not forget that there existed the highly entrenched leadership of the Jewish religion. Some were very honest, sincere, and earnest men and women who humbly sought God's word and will for their lives. Others had reduced what was meant to restore and produce a relationship between God and man to a worship of rules, regulations, and liturgical ritual. Those who made their living enjoyed their power and position would not look kindly on anyone or anything which seriously threatened their station in life. Keeping all of these factors in mind, we would have to seriously look at all of the ramifications for the various authorities resulting from an ever-increasing group of people who were publicly declaring that a man, i.e. Jesus, claimed to be the Messiah, performed numerous public miracles, 
fulfilled countless documented prophecies, made astounding prophecies of his own, claimed equality with God, predicted his own death and resurrection, had in fact been crucified, died, been buried, and had risen again. All of this would have been and was a huge threat to all authorities involved. Each would have been highly motivated to do whatever was necessary to eliminate or otherwise discredit such claims. The actual recorded behaviors of the historical authorities contained in the gospel books, as well as the epistles, document many of their actions taken against Jesus, his disciples, as well as the church itself in order to discourage or eliminate them. So perhaps we can agree that if there had been a single effective method of disproving or eliminating the messianic claims of Jesus and his resurrection, then surely one of the many who had the means, motive, and opportunity would have done so. When any one of the growing numbers of Jesus' followers made the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, left his tomb, appeared to hundreds, and ascended to heaven, rather than argue about it or spend time and money punishing those proclaiming this message, why not simply open the tomb and produce the rotting corpse of Jesus? The Romans, the authorities, and the Jews had the resources, the access, the motivation, the ability to do so at any time. Never do we have any account that made the attempt to do so. Why? The only reason which makes any sense in such an environment is that they were unable to do so because the tomb was in a known location and it was already known to be empty. As a result, it would have been impossible to produce Jesus' body. The first mention of the reality of the empty tomb comes as a presupposition from the account of what happened three days after Jesus' body was sealed inside the tomb found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Quote, now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and shewed unto the chief priests all things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day, unquote. In other words, this account would be tantamount evidence admitting that the historical fact was that Jesus' tomb was empty. The issue was how to explain the empty tomb in such a way as to undercut and dismiss any future claims that Jesus had arisen by claiming that the disciples had stolen the body. In order to assure this, Matthew records that the chief priests bribed the guards who were placed at the tomb for just such a possibility, had fallen asleep on duty, allowed one or more of the disciples to sneak past them, break an official seal which was placed on the tomb, 
roll back an enormous stone weighing an average of 2,000 to 4,000 pounds uphill without waking the guards, collect Jesus' adult body, and then walk away past the guards with Jesus' body without waking them. You also have to ask why any of the two or more disciples of Jesus who had just three days previously abandoned Jesus due to fear of the authorities would now, three days later, brave Rome, local authorities, the Jewish religious establishment, and the armed guards presently guarding Jesus' tomb to rescue Jesus' dead body under penalty of suffering the same fate as Jesus. Insofar as the archaeological evidence is concerned, an interesting find was made in 1878 in Nazareth. There, a marble slab was found with an inscription dating back to about 40 to 50 AD, reading, quote, Ordinance of Caesar. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain perpetually undisturbed for those who have made them for the cult of their ancestors or children or members of their house. If, however, anyone charges that another has either demolished them or has in any other way extracted the buried or has maliciously transferred them to other places in order to wrong them or has displaced the ceiling on other stones against such a one, I order that a trial be instituted as in respect of the gods, so in regard to the cult of the mortals." For it shall be much more obligatory to honor the buried. Let it be absolutely forbidden for anyone to disturb them. In case of violation, I desire that the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on charge of a violation of sepulcher. Prior to this decree, all previous Roman edicts concerning grave violation only prescribed a large fine to the violator. This begs the question as to what event or events were responsible for such a drastic change of law. Since all provincial governors in the Roman Empire were required to submit annual reports of their activities to the Emperor of Rome, then it is logical to suggest that a summary report of the Fuhrer surrounding Jesus' trial and execution would have been included. If this report included a report claiming Jesus' body had been stolen, his tomb was empty, and some were now claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, then this would tend to support such a harsh change in the laws regarding grave robbery resulting from the emperor. 7. A large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. Insofar as this fact is concerned, one only need read the Gospel accounts as well as the epistles written by Jesus' disciples to know that there is a clear, undeniable claim that the disciples saw, heard, and touched the physical body of a living, breathing man who they knew to be Jesus three days after Jesus was dead and buried. The disciples made these claims at different times, in different places, to different people. The claims were made by many of the disciples, both individually, in pairs, or all together. 9. After the reappearance of Jesus, 
the disciples were psychologically transformed. When we take an overview look at the lives of Jesus' disciples and compare what is known about them prior to the resurrection to what is known about them following the resurrection, we would see demonstrable differences in their character and behavior. Each has a story to tell which begs the question, what happened? For example, Matthew, also known as Levi, was a tax collector for the Romans. Tax collectors were appointed from among the local population and were typically secured by being the highest bidder. So in effect, Matthew bought his position as tax collector. In turn, the collector would levy additional taxes to cover the bid price, but also for their own profit. All these taxes were to pay the conquering forces occupying and subjugating the Jewish people, one of whom was Matthew. So Matthew would have been viewed as the worst of traitors and sinners. Consequently, Matthew was driven by greed, avarice, self-ambition, dishonesty, and corruption. Yet, despite being an outcast due to his past, he remained in Jerusalem for 15 years where he would have been well-known preaching the risen Christ. Peter was a fisherman who was hot-tempered, impetuous, unstable, enthusiastic, strong-willed, impulsive, and at times a brash individual. One minute he would swear allegiance and give life and limb for a man he himself confessed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. At one time he would pick up a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest to defend Jesus. And the next moment he would use profanity to swear three times that he did not even know who Jesus was and run away. One minute he had the faith to walk on water, and the next his doubt found him sinking below the surface. Yet after the resurrection, it was the same Peter who preached at Pentecost and boldly proclaimed Jesus to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Despite being repeatedly arrested, beaten, threatened, and imprisoned twice, Peter's resolve could not be dampened to preach the risen Christ. Despite all this and more, Peter continued to preach Christ until he was crucified at his own request upside down. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again in part three as we continue to examine the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at Pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.